if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Romans 8. But as I was praying through this situation and thinking about where I was in my Christian walk, some of the influences I had speaking into my life, some of the ways that I was feeling at the time as I was growing pretty rapidly and, and coming to a crashing halt of recognizing that a lot of stuff that I'd brought into my mind about God was wrong. Um, I feel that it's right for us to, to slow down a little bit with where we are because of whatever controversy surrounds some of the buzzwords that we're going to look at and really handle them biblically and kind of talk about what is it to research things that we don't understand in the Bible. How should you handle them? How should you, how should you work through them together? And then what, what that looks like in changing your life. And so here's what I'm, I'm looking to do is we're going to read through this. We're going to talk generally about it. I might say a lot of things. You're like, I don't understand what that means. Raise your hand, okay? Let's, let's make this one huge small group, okay? And if we have questions, let's talk through it because I would feel much better about us all getting the material and wrestling through the material rather than just saying, well, that's just what Jeremy believes about it, so that's just what we're going to buy, okay? Uh, that might be a good way to fish, but that's not going to work with this, okay? So we're in Romans 8. Romans 8 deals with glorification. And the certainty of glorification, understanding that there is more to be gained that God wants for you and for me. Is God going to glorify every Christian? Absolutely. In fact, that's the reason why we got to be careful about how we handle the word salvation. Salvation doesn't just mean go to heaven when you die. Salvation could mean that you're declared righteous before God. I have been saved. It could mean uh, that you are no longer falling prey to the temptation that the world and the devil and the flesh wants to draw you into. So I am being saved right now. The $5 word we give to that is sanctification. I'm being sanctified. I'm being set apart. I'm reading the word of God. I'm becoming more convicted about the things in life that I entertain or that I found pleasure in. And I find those things don't make me happy anymore. Because God's changing my life from the inside out. But we also talk about glorification, which is when this life is over and done with, we're going to stand spotless before the Lord and be completely free from any influence of sin in our lives at all. Now that's a glorious day. But the word salvation also can mean rescue, deliver, healed. It's got a lot of different meanings. And so context always determines the meaning. <clears throat> forgive me, I didn't take my allergy nose spray this morning, so don't everybody freak out, okay? I'm going to stay up here, try to stay up here best I can. But in our verse that we're memorizing right now, we see that we've not been given a spirit of fear, right? 8.15? But God's given every believer something amazing, a spirit of adoption. And the spirit of adoption is not the same as the event of Adoption. Does that make sense? Just like we talk about the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of the salvation to come. We are not glorified right now, but if you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, aiding you, guiding you, helping you, convicting you, leading you. He does all these miraculous and wonderful things 
in order to give us a better life in the here and now as a foretaste of what is to come. Everybody with me? Okay, making sure. So, if that's where we're going with this, all of creation, and even my broken down body, your broken down body, are all longing for the day when this event happens, when it culminates into what is known as the revealing of the sons of God. And so if we were to look at chapter 8, just real quick, and let's, let's just summarize so we don't have to read through all of it. Hopefully we're familiar with it so far. Verse 15, we have the adoption of sons. We have the understanding in verse 17 that if you're a child of God, you're an heir of God, but you can also be a joint heir with Jesus, but that is contingent upon suffering in this life now. Now, that doesn't mean that we go out and look for opportunities for suffering because we think somehow that if we have a bad way in this life, it's going to give way to a greater life in the life to come. That's not necessarily true. What we find is, is just as we grow in our conviction and understanding of the Word of God, what will happen is the suffering will come. There will come a time when we will have to choose between the truth of what God has told us in the Bible or where everybody else in the world is going right now. Majority rules. Well, the consensus has been taken. Or we say it this way. Well, don't you know that everybody's doing that? You know? And then, of course, you hear your mom in the background, right? Well, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you do that too? You know, you hear that go on, right? All that we're worried about is what God has said. And here's what you will find if you read from Genesis to Revelation. For lives that mattered in the Bible, lives that held weight, lives that you knew when their life was over, it was going to be an incredible homecoming before the Lord. You found out that these people had abandoned everything that was expected of them by this life and just said, I just want to serve the Lord. I just want to serve the Lord. Only thing I care about is what God wants. Everybody remember Enoch? It says Enoch walked with God. I want to walk with God. Let me give you an example of this real quick. I'm sorry, Mitch, this is totally off where we're going. He's like, I'm used to it. But everybody knows in Genesis, right? Enoch walked with God, and he was no more, for God took him, right? Which, I don't care what people have to say about it, that's evidence of a rapture, okay? Now, here's what's interesting. Why did God take him? Let me just give you an example real quick so you can see what we're going to step into. Turn to Jude, little book of Jude right before Revelation. Because Jude gives us some insight. We don't have much about Enoch in the rest of the Bible. Jude gives us some insight into his life. And it's incredible what was going on in Enoch's life. And we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. Jude verses 14 and 15. Just to give you an example. And here's the reason why we're doing this. Some people look at the Old Testament and think, man, there's all these crazy things in there and I really don't understand it all. Why in the world read it? We read it because it tells us about the glory to come. So Jude, only got one chapter, so you can't get that one wrong. If you went into Revelation 1, you went one page too far. Go back one. Verses 14 and 15. Here we go. Watch this, okay? It says here, It was also about these men that Enoch... In the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, now watch this. He's documenting what Enoch was saying during his lifetime, his life on earth. 
which was cut short because God said, hey, come be with me, okay? Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How to Win Friends and Influence People was the book that Enoch read before he said that, right? No, what's he talking about? The coming judgment of God. And the reason why God is coming to judge is because the world is enraptured with ungodliness. Everybody see that? I don't care who you are. This is not a guy who cares, a hill of beans, about who's on the news, who's on the front of People magazine, what somebody posted on Facebook. Great, weighty lives of the Bible don't give a rip about what's going on here. They don't. And this is a point that we've got to understand. Why is that? Because I want for you, and I would hope that you want for me, to have the most maximum possible glorification that Jesus Christ has made available. And if that means suffering with him so that we will be co-heirs with him in the glory to come, then so be it. But we've got to come to a conviction of God's word being true and so moving our hearts to make those hard choices to let the chaff go so that the wheat will stand. Everybody with me? Okay, so let's go back to Romans 8. And this is what makes something like verse 28 and the interpretation that I gave to you controversial. But I believe that it lines up with the chapter perfectly. First, chapter 8, verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Perseverance and eagerly waiting. Eagerly waiting for what? The adoption of sons. That great coronation ceremony, whenever those who were faithful in Christ are publicly recognized in eternity, and they are giving ruling and reigning positions alongside Jesus Christ their Lord. How did they get those? They trusted God's word. They made the hard decisions. They suffered when it called for it. That's what happened. So now look at verse 28. And we know that God causes, and real quick, causes is not part of this situation. I do not believe because it's connected to the word work. So we would say, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Now, is he sovereign over history? Yes, but the word sovereign never in the Bible means that he meticulously controls every single little minutia of life. The word sovereign actually means he has the right to rule. He is the reigning one. It is a kingly term, a royal term. It is not that he is super narcissistic, type A, everything's got to be done my way. Not at all. Because if he did control the minutia of the world, how do you explain the fall? You either have to say that God caused it to happen, of which some people believe, yeah, God caused that sin. He's behind it all. He's the one who made people sin. Now you have a contradiction in God's character, don't you? Can't handle it that way. So God works for the good, all things, for those who love him. 
And here is the stark reality that we've got to come to terms with. Not every Christian loves him. And that's a question that we have to ask. Do I love him? Well, what does it mean to love? Well, of course I love him. I'm a Christian. When he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he was speaking to the 11 disciples after Judas left. These are people who were already believers in him. But he was challenging them, letting them know, if you love me, you will not just believe what I say, but you will do what I say. That's how you know love. Don't we all long for the day when we no longer have to discipline our kids for them to do the right thing? They just recognize that because they value and trust our words, they're going to do them. Wouldn't that be a great way to go? Don't you wish that would happen when they're four? All God's people said, Amen! Right? Absolutely. Do we love God enough to obey Him without Him needing to come in and paddle us? He is a perfect parent. And He will teach us. Notice that all the reasons that Paul's giving for this endurance is there's nothing but good things to be gained. There's nothing but good things to be gained. So why not endure, knowing that when it's all said and done, it's going to be glorious? And now here's where we open up the bear trap and we put our foot in there. Verse 29. For, and I will go ahead and tell you, that word there in the Greek is not gar, it's haughty. And it should be translated because. And so what it's telling us here is because, here it's giving an explanation of what he just said, and this explanation is going to further strengthen the point that God works all things for the good of those who love him. For other people, he allows for consequences to tame them or to overwhelm them or to deal with them. And he's talking about believers here. It says here, because for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. or bre- Yeah, bre- brethren, forgive me, or brothers, you might say. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This has caused a lot of controversy in the church. And I believe that it's largely unnecessary, but it has. Messed me up for years. So let me walk you through some of the belief systems. Talk about how to break this worst word down for new. That's as far as we're going to get. Next week, we'll deal with predestined. But the idea of foreknew, what does it mean to foreknow something? We'll talk about a better way to understand this passage and some of the biblical evidence compared to how people have thought about it, and then we'll ask, why does it matter? Here we go. Let's bring up the first slide if we can. You have two classes, two major classes of theology and how they view these certain viewpoints. The first you have is called Arminianism. And Arminianism is what you find usually stemming from the Wesleyan tradition, Methodist traditions, um, most of the time Church of God, some Charismatics and things like that are more falling in those lines. And here's what Arminianism sees when they see the idea of foreknew or foreknown, that type of thing. They actually say foreseen. What happened was is that God saw through the corridors of time who would believe, and if they believed, he would choose those individuals based on their foreseen faith. So God is looking for who's going to respond to the gospel, who's going to respond to the gospel. And of course, all this takes place before creation ever came into existence. 
And therefore, he's going to choose those, and those are the elect. Sometimes I joke with you guys about the elect all the time. It's really not funny. And that's just because I'm not funny. But the idea is, are they going to believe? And if so, they're considered chosen or elect or choice ones. Some people can look at it that way. Uh, The word elect and chosen can be used interchangeably in those types of situations. Now, here's the problem. With your Arminian belief, you often run into a problem known as semi-Pelagianism. And I know that's a huge word. You can Google it later. Some people actually go as far as to say, well, what happens is, is actually the initiation of believing in God comes from me, and I'm the one who takes the first step. No, 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 no. God took the first step. God took the first step in making salvation available on the cross. God took another step in bringing about the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convict the world, everyone. He took another uh, step in by giving us the Word of God to tell us everything that we need to know. And this is very important to understand. We are overwhelmed with verses in the New Testament that speak of the fact that Jesus Christ tasted death for every person. Hebrews 2.9 is hard to, hard to argue against. 1 John 2.2 is hard to argue against. And you have to do, here's a big word for you for Jeopardy, hermeneutical gymnastics in order to get out of that. In other words, you've got to backflip your interpretive process in the Bible in order to make anything else make sense than that. Now, the problem with the Arminian belief majorly is, is that if you want to walk away from Christianity later, you can, and you can go back to hell. In fact, there was one Arminian church that Beth and I used to go to, the church we met in and got uh, married in, long, long time ago, uh, when I first got serious about the Lord. And the sign actually said, try Jesus. If you don't like him, the devil will take you back. Does that sound like a good time? No, you take back a dirty cheeseburger. That's what you take back. But not your salvation, you don't forfeit that, or they'll believe you can sin. You need to ask for forgiveness, so you're still in. But if you sin in a major way, then God's probably going to drop you back off. Or it's a sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. Okay? I don't know about you, but that makes my brain hurt. Okay? So whenever they see the idea of foreseeing, the idea is that God is picking out people because they've responded to the gospel down the line. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Second viewpoint is Calvinism or the Calvinist interpretation. Now, I was a Calvinist for eight years, and I knew all the arguments, I understood all the passages, and I would destroy you and hate you at the same time if you did not agree with me. I was a very grace-filled individual. In fact, sometimes Calvinism is called the doctrines of grace. I found there anything but. The idea of foreknow something is actually the idea of foreordaining, ordaining something to happen before it ever occurs. And the idea is God set his love on certain unconditionally pre-selected individuals before the world began. Sometimes they say, well, no, 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 God foreloved those people. That's what it is because he's not obligated to love anybody. He just chose certain individuals that he would love and effectually works to change their hearts so that they want to come to him for salvation. Now, here's a great problem that you have with this because the argument that is often used from Romans 9 is, well, it's before they ever did anything good or bad. Okay, so God just chose randomly. It's an arbitrary choice. Because if it's not conditioned upon anything in the person, and I understand why they say that, because we're all sinful and nobody deserves to be chosen and all this stuff. I get that. I understand the argument thoroughly. 
But it still doesn't change the fact that God played the lottery with people. This one, this one, it, I mean, think about it. If we went through and have everybody count one, two, one, two, one, two, and I said, okay, only the twos are going in. You ones would say, what? How in the world is that possible? Now, here's why that makes this scary. is because with the Calvinist position, you cannot believe in Jesus because you're so depraved. And so God has to give you the gift of faith in order for you to exercise it to believe so that you can be saved. Now, here's the problem with that. Is even though he is the one who has to give you the gift to be saved, if he didn't give you the gift to be saved, and therefore you could never be saved, no matter how many times you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, he will still damn you to the lake of fire, and he will hold you responsible for that. That's what they believe. Now, you have some who say, well, no, no, no. He only chose certain people to go to heaven, and that's it. But he didn't choose those people to go to hell. Stop, man. If you have the power to decide which of your kids gets to play video games and which one of them doesn't, then ultimately you're to blame for the one who's not playing. That's your choice that you get to make of how you've handled their life, of what you're allowing them to do and not allowing them to do. So what I find here with this idea of, no, foreknown is actually foreordained. That doesn't satisfy it either. Because what this does is this makes God a tyrant. Now stop for a second. What is the context of Romans 8? What is it? Glorification. So why all of a sudden would Paul bring up this series of things, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. They might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those he justified, or sorry, those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. Why would he bring up what's call, often called the golden chain of redemption, how people get saved, towards the end of a glorification chapter? Does that make sense? No, that should have happened back in chapter three. That's where it would have fit in context. Number two, do you notice that Everything in these two verses is past tense. Does everybody see that? Okay. And here's what they say. Here's what the Calvinist says. Well, they're all in past tense because as far as God is concerned, all these things are already a done deal. They're so certain because his word is guaranteed it. That's the way they argue their way out of that. They're all past tense. And they're all in the aorist tense in Greek. Now you say, what does that mean? Here's what it means is that none of it can be speaking to the future. That's important to understand. None of those things, those six buzzwords that are brought up there, can be speaking to the future whatsoever. They happen at a point in history, and that's it. Now, understanding all that, who has a question? Because I know I'm giving you a lot, and I'm briefly summarizing, and somebody's going to complain about it. You didn't properly represent the argument. Whatever. Arlene, go for it. It is a reformed idea. Reform, reformed and Calvinism are about the same. Yes, yes. Arminians and Calvinists love to strangle each other over this issue. Yes. And honestly, if you think about it, they both kind of believe the same thing. It's just two sides of the same mirror. It's very odd. So yes. Any other questions? Because I would rather you get this than not. That's true. Calvin actually had somebody killed. His name was Severus. Se Servius? No, Severus is in Harry Potter. Um, I can't remember. 
Uh, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> he just said Expelliarmus and he was out of there. Uh, he actually did. Yeah, I can't remember his name right now, but it's Servanus or something like that. Yes. And actually, whenever he ran Geneva in Switzerland, he had a lot of people banished for corrupt behavior and sin and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If you research it, he wasn't a very gracious guy either. No other questions. Okay, so here I am, eight years to being on fire for the Lord. I'm reading the book of Hebrews, and I can't make any sense of it because I've got this two-sided paradigm. Either people are choosing Jesus, and for rampant sin in their life or struggles that they have, they're in danger of losing their salvation, and they can never know whether they're really saved, or God just chose certain people before the foundation of the world and said, you're in and you're out, but we don't know who's chosen and who's not chosen. So if I don't live a righteous life, and if I don't bear the appropriate fruit for other people to see so that they can tell me that I'm elect in my life, I have no way to know if I'm going to heaven then either. Now that's a conundrum. Because when I started to read the Bible, I started to recognize, wait, the Bible's giving me assurance. And then I started to hear this. Well, I know that's what it seems to say but that's not what it really means. And so this led me to a crisis because the only other option I had is, you know what, I'm going to sit down my Bible and walk away. That's what's going to happen. Because why can't I just be pleasing to God? How come I can't have any security in my life? What is the issue here? Now, was I saved? I absolutely believe I was saved. Absolutely. I don't have to have eternal security to go to heaven when I die. I have to believe in Jesus Christ who gives me eternal life. You see what I'm saying? He gives me eternal life regardless of whether I'm verifying it or not verifying or struggling at that moment. The Bible's really clear. So how do I deal with the issue? The first thing you do is you do a word study. I know that's nerdy and not very fashionable today, but that's what we need to do as well. So here we go. Hopefully you've got this paper in your handout. Hopefully you got a pen. If you need an extra, let Zach know. Anybody need an extra? He's nimble. There you go. Fantastic. And hopefully you've got a pen. There we go. <clears throat> what is interesting about this word, foreknew, foreknow, is it's derived from a word that we've already covered when we looked at John chapter 17. And it's a word, genosco. Now, you don't need to copy this part of it down. And if you feel like, okay, I wasn't able to get everything or something like that, when Mitch posts this on the website later and you go to the sermons tab up in the top right-hand corner, you'll be able to go through this or go on our YouTube channel and you'll be able to see these exact slides so you can stop them, slow them down, whatever information you need to get, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you this as well. Pete wasn't able to make it today because it snowed too much up where he lives. Uh, but anyway, so he's not going to be, I mean, Chuck made it. Come on, man. You know, Chuck's got the craziest driveway in the world. He's here. Whatever. I'm sure Pete's listening to this now and I'm going to get it later, but... <clears throat> anyway, so I'm going to be doing Sunday school. I'm going to be doing it in here, and we're just going to do an open Q&A about Bible stuff. So if you have questions about this topic, we will talk about it then. We can do that for Sunday school, okay? We dealt with this word, no. And there are many different words for no in the Greek language, but this word, gnosko, is very interesting. Number one, run through the definition real quick. To arrive at a knowledge of, to acquire information through some means, to grasp the significance or meaning of something, to be aware of something. Uh, go ahead, bitch. Dave, whoever. To have sexual intercourse with, to have come to the knowledge of, to indicate that one does know. But here's something that's very interesting about this Greek word. 
This verb is variously nuanced in context relating to familiarity acquired through experience or association with a person or thing. In other words, it's not just a like, oh yeah, well, everybody knows that kind of thing. No, no. It's the fact that you've spent time with it, you've wrestled with it, or you have a hands-on relationship in the works. Does that make sense? Okay. So the idea when we talk about gnosko, there's always experience, or maybe what we might say is intimacy that is involved. There's some sort of connection or established relationship, or firsthand, I can put my fingers on it kind of thing that we talk about when that word is being used. Now, what's interesting about this is when you go to look at what the word for new means, it's the idea of pro-genosko. Let's go to the next one. For new is pro-genosko. So genosko, to have a knowledge of something, but to have an experience involved or a familiarity that's going on with that. But the prefix pro that is added on is actually a preposition. A preposition is anywhere a mouse can go, okay? On, under, over, around, through, those types of things. And pro actually means before. So what we have here is just combining the word together. It's to have a familiar or relational knowledge of something beforehand, to know before. Everybody see that? Number one, and this is very interesting in the lexicons, to know beforehand or in advance, to know something in advance. Now, one thing about the definition for number one is notice it doesn't give you a determination of time. If it doesn't say before the foundation of the world, Why should we think it's before the foundation of the world? And why does our mind always go to before the foundation of the world? I'll tell you why, because there's only about two or three verses that speak of before the foundation of the world, and they're used in various contexts. So our mind might have a tendency to always want to go there unchecked. But here's what I found very interesting. Number two, to choose beforehand. And then the lexicon wants to give a series of verses. Everybody see that? So Romans 8, 29, that's a verse we have in question now, yes. Romans 11, 2, we're going to look at that. 1 Peter 1, 20, we're going to look at that. Acts 26, 5, and there's actually another one in 2 Peter 3 that we're going to look at. But here's what's interesting. Look what it says. They're specified along with general references to Romans 9 through 11. You know what that tells me? It tells me that when they talked about foreknowledge, they just decided that Romans 9 through 11 would be good to group that in there without giving a specific example of occurrence in Romans 9 through 11. Does everybody see that? Notice that there's no verse in Romans 9, 10, or 11 that's mentioned in that line that it's given. You know why? Because honestly, the word foreknew or foreknow is not used a lot in the Bible. It's not used a lot in the New Testament. So what they're saying is, conceptually, it's used in Romans 9, 10, 11. Now let me ask you a question. Let's scale all this back, and let's just get with the attributes of God, which are incredibly important understanding our Bible. Is God omniscient? Yes, omniscient. That means he knows everything. Absolutely. Does that mean that he causes or determines everything? No. No. In fact, when you get into that type of thinking, you start running into Richard Dawkins' theology, which is like an atheist. Because what he says is, you know what? You, you, can't, you can't put a, a child molester on trial. They were just doing what the synopsis in their brain 
was just clicking and telling them to do it, and they had to act on their chemical impulses, and they couldn't have done any differently. Well, let me ask you a question. If God meticulously determined any, everything in your life, could you do any differently than what he said? Do we know the answer to that? Afterwards, if God said, I have predestined for Chuck, I've foreknown that Chuck is going to go to Burger King, because we got to talk about cheeseburgers on Sunday, don't we? And he's going to get the burgers and fries and the chocolate shake. Can Chuck do anything other than what God has planned out for his life to do? He cannot. In fact, if he did, would God be God anymore? No, because God was wrong. Everybody see that? So we got a problem. We can't read more into the omniscience of God, the fact that he knows everything, than what the Bible tells us. It's very important for us to handle it well. So now, question we need to ask is, do these instances mean to choose beforehand or to foreordain? Are those credible ideas here? Well, we see 829. Turn over with me to 11, Romans 11. And let's look at the instance that comes up, and we're going to get a little bit of running start into it by starting in chapter 10. We'll start with the end of what was going on there. And the whole idea is, is that Israel, through unbelief, has removed themselves out of receiving the gospel. However, Gentiles, who weren't looking for God whatsoever, have all of a sudden started becoming believers in Christ. And so in chapter 10, verse 21, look what it says. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now stop for a second and just ask yourself the question. If Israel is chosen, and we say what they're chosen to is salvation when they die, and yet the remark here is they're nothing but, look at the words, disobedient and obstinate people, then what we have to conclude is, is that either they are doing that and should be responsible, be held responsible for their disobedience and for their obstinate ways, or that God decided that's the way that they would be, And you really can't hold them accountable. Everybody see that? They get a pass. Does Israel get a pass? No. So notice verse 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And notice what Paul says. He uses the double negative that we see all the time in Romans. May it never be. No way, Jose. Uh -uh, Uh-uh. Don't think that is the idea. He says, for I too am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Now pause for a second and look at the word foreknew. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Who are his people? Israel is what the context is talking about. Now, does this mean that he foreordained them? Does it mean that he foresaw their situation of whether or not they would believe in their Messiah? Or does it simply mean that he had a relationship with them before that time that's given? Does everybody see how the word foreknew can simply mean he knew them beforehand in an intimate, relational way? Does everybody see that? He has a prior history with them. That's what it's talking about. So he has this prior history with them, and he made these promises to them. Has he rejected them? And Paul's saying, no, he hasn't rejected them. He has a history with them. He knew them previously, is the idea. Pro-Gnosko. 
before intimate knowledge of. Everybody will see this. Now, how do we deal with the conundrum that pulls out of this? Notice it says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone and left. And they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? Now watch this. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Oh, see there, it sounds like that he chose out certain people. And this wasn't going to be an issue. Does everybody see how this is all caps? Everybody see how verse 4 is all caps? Yes? Okay. Mitch, if you wouldn't mind, bring up 1 Kings 19 real quick. If you go back and you look, well, what was going on here when this was actually said? 1 Kings 19, verses 17 and 18. It shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazaliel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. And here's a quote. Yet. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. There's the quote. Notice, it's people who made the choice to serve the Lord and to not bow down to the false God in their day and time. And those are the people who are considered the remnant of that time. What happened? They came to a choice. Do I obey God? Or do I obey and go every way that everybody else is going? No, there were 7,000 people who said no to this and yes to him. Does everybody see that? So this whole idea of having a remnant set aside, why were they set aside? Because they chose under their own personal conviction to respond to the Lord in obedience. Not because God chose them and they couldn't think any other way about it. See, comparing Scripture with Scripture clears that up for us. How about this? Move on to... Acts 26. Acts chapter 26. This is Paul speaking. He is on trial. He is before Agrippa, if you notice that in verse 1. And what he likes about Agrippa is that Agrippa is actually a guy in a royal ranking position who has authority that is familiar with Jewish customs. Jewish traditions. And so he can appeal to him because Paul, being from the tribe of Benjamin, is Jewish and yet he's also a Roman citizen. He's got, he's, you know, bang, bang, he's got gangbusters working for him in this situation. So it's really advantageous for his argument. But look what he says in verses four and five. He says, so then all Jews know, and that's a different word. That's not genosko, that's actually the word oida. So it means, it means to know something. All Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning, notice, is that time past from his youth up from the beginning? Notice how context is leading you in this direction here. Was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time. Does everybody see the phrase, since they have known me? You know what that word is? Prognosco. It is the word, they use those four words to sum up, they foreknew me. Foreknew him how? What does the context tell you? Foreknew him since when? When he was wee little Saul, hanging out in Jerusalem. They know, they've known me since my youth. They've known me beforehand. They've had a relationship or a familiarity with me on a prior basis, historically speaking. Does everybody see that? Okay. So there's another example we have. 
since they've known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. He's making the defense for himself. But notice, they have a knowledge of me beforehand, historically speaking. Everybody see that, yes? Okay, who's asleep? Okay, I know this night might not exactly be lighting your fire right now, but trust me, it's going to matter in how you think about God. Let's move to 1 Peter. Turn all the way to the right. 1 Peter, we want to look at chapter 1. And if you have an NIV, a King James, or a New King James, this is going to throw you for a loop, okay? Because they have chosen to translate this word differently here when we see prognosco. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 17. Peter's writing to Christians, of course. Here's what he says. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now notice, this is talking about the judgment seat of Christ for believers. He impartially judges every believer according to their work. What they've done in the body, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Now watch this, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, with from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. In other words, the way that you used to live when you loved the world and operated according to the world and made decisions according to the world. No, 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 no. You've been bought out of that situation. But look what he says. But with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. Why? For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Here's a question. Was Jesus Christ intimately known before? Was he? Yeah, in fact, it gives us a time period, doesn't it? Before the foundation of the world. We know that as the doctrine of the Trinity. That God the Father had an intimate, understanding relationship with the Son before time ever began, before the world was ever created. So when it says here in verse 20, for he was foreknown, he being Christ, the one who gave his blood, foreknown before the foundation of the world, and notice the transition, but he has appeared in these last times. For the sake of you. In other words, he was known previously because he's eternal and God knew him previously, but he's been manifested now to accomplish the work of salvation for people by dying on the cross. What does the word mean here? To know beforehand. That's what it means. How about 2 Peter 3? Look over at 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. The second Peter 3 is a good chapter. It's just like the whole world is going to turn into a melting pot and, and it's going to die and it's going to be terrible. And so if that's the case, how should you act as a Christian? Makes me think of our chili cook-off or kind of in a Super Bowl party. I don't know. <clears throat> Moving on here. Second Peter 3, look at verse 13. It says, but according to his promise, we, and notice that Peter includes himself there, are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, therefore, because we're looking for that, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless 
and blameless and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, somebody would say, see, if you are not at peace and spotless and blameless, then what you find out is, is that when you reach the end of your life and you die, you weren't really saved. That's not what he's talking about. He's not casting doubt on these people's salvation and eternal destiny. He's saying that it's the salvation to come. That it's patience of the Lord as salvation. Notice what it says. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. In what things? The coming of the new heavens and the new earth and the fact that we're going to be judged before the judgment seat of Christ. This was the crux of Paul's ministry to people. And so notice he says, even as Paul has written about these things, look, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now watch that. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing what beforehand? That there are false teachers who are going to try to distort the things of Scripture for their own personal gain. So because you know that beforehand, because you are acquainted with or you have that understanding or you're familiar with it beforehand, since you understand this, you have a previous knowledge of this. So knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Does everybody see that? It means knowing something beforehand. Now that we've talked about false teachers that are going to do this to God's word, and now that you already know this or you have known this beforehand, live in such a way as to where you're on guard against these people who are going to try to steal your faith from you. Everybody see this? Okay, anybody gotten saved? Trick question. Notice that every one of these instances, context always determines the meaning. Now, why does this matter? Let me show you something very interesting that I found. If we can, let's bring up the the William Craig quote. William Lane Craig is probably one of the smartest men on the face of the earth. World-renowned apologist, brilliant. Here's what he says. It is sometimes suggested that foreknow with regard to the elect means choose in advance so that foreknowledge and unconditional election to salvation become synonymous. But, again, there is no linguistic evidence in support of this suggestion. Here's what he's saying. When you look at every instance in the Bible, nothing points you in that direction. So, out of the 770 cases of yada, to know, in the Old Testament, and 660 instances of genosko to know in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So how they chose to translate that word into Greek. And the 220 in the New Testament, the term never carries the sense of choose or elect. Not one time. It means something really simple, to know something beforehand. To have a previous relationship of something beforehand. That's what it means, or to know previously. In fact, one commentator actually said to be pre-acquainted with something, to have an acquaintance with somebody beforehand. Now, here's something else that's incredible. No one in the early church believed this. No one in the early church believed this. In fact, the apostles didn't believe this, and everybody that came out of their training didn't believe this either. If you check from 100 AD to 400 AD, you don't have one occurrence of anyone in that early church history period 
that believed this idea that the word foreknow actually means to choose beforehand or to ordain something beforehand. Not one person. In fact, I found probably the earliest guy. His name is Justin Martyr is his name. He was born in Judea uh, in 100 AD. He lived to 165 AD. And here's what he writes. Let's go to that quote. It's a brief one, but it holds weight. What we say about future events being foretold, we do not say it as though they come about by fatal necessity. Now, why is that? Because if God has already chosen everything that will ever happen for everybody's life at all time, and you could have not done otherwise, that's called fatalism. You have no choice but to go in that direction. Why did you get a D in math? Well, mom, God obviously chose for me to get a D in math. You know? When some people say, how is it that you can't believe Calvinism? I say, well, according to your philosophy and thinking, God must have chose me not to believe in Calvinism because I'm not believing it. Everybody see how that works? Some of you will get that after lunch, I promise. But if he's meticulously determined all things, and I am currently standing on a platform of saying that's not right, and that's not right, and that's what I'm holding to, how could I be holding to anything else if God is meticulously controlling every little bit of my life? It's impossible. The argument hurts itself. So you might say, okay, wait a second. Those of me foreknew, and let's back up, okay? God works all things for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? The adoption of sons. He wants us all to have a maximum glorification. And so it says, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. That's what it says. What in the world does it mean then? Praise God, I found somebody who actually believes this. We're not there yet, Kevin. That'll actually probably be in two Sundays. But we're going to get there. That's why we're taking it slow. We're taking it slow. Uh, and real quick, before we go to this slide, let me say something else about the history part of it, just so you know. There's a book called The Foundations of Augustinian Calvinism, is what it's called. I know it sounds like a real hot read uh, on, on the New York Times bestseller 100. But if you're somebody who wants to tackle it, it is a short book. It's very well researched. It's written by one of two guys in all of the world who has actually read all of Augustine's writings from the beginning to the end, his letters, his sermons, everything that he ever wrote. He's only one of two people in the world that has done it. He actually got his doctorate in philosophy from his dissertation that he wrote on how Augustine changed his views over time. And even when he researched, nobody in church history believed this up until the time of Augustine. Does anybody know who Augustine is? He's the father of what? Catholic theology. And because Augustine grew up in what is known as Neoplatonism and also known as Stoicism, which the Stoics, the idea that all matter is evil, uh, only the spirit is what's pure, but it, you know, created people is evil, that type of thing. And also something else called Manichaeism. Again, wonderful, beautiful Jeopardy words that you can totally check out. This is all really great reading, okay? But They all had deterministic ideas. You can't do anything but that. Everything is already at fate's door and at fate's hand. You can't do anything otherwise. And so the way that this crept in was that with this bringing up of Augustine to prominence, mostly after his death, 
but started to be embraced in a Catholic theology. And then when you have the Reformation take place in the 1500s, they were trying to break away from the Catholic Church, but they couldn't get rid of that. And it shined itself through. In fact, John Calvin is quoted as saying, if you were to reproduce, or what did he say? I could reproduce all of Augustine's works to perfectly represent my theology. So this is why I have a problem with this, and this is why I have a problem with churches getting way off track and buying into this fatalistic interpretation, and especially the Arminian stuff about you can lose your salvation. They're both wrong, guys. They're both wrong. And I've probably spent way more of my life dealing with these subjects than probably what I should, but I find that they cause problems all the time. So what in the world does this passage mean? Let's see this last quote. This is a guy named W.T. Moore. I don't know anything about him, except that I believe he's right. He is the president of the Bible College of Missouri, and this was written in the 1800s. Our conclusion, therefore, is that the later passage, sorry, the the latter passage, as well as the former, the apostle is referring to a long line of worthy saints whom God, under former dispensations, had acknowledged or approved. And having approved them, he marked them out, called them, justified them, and made them glorious. There's a second part to it. To sum up the whole case, this foreknowledge of God is simply his acknowledgement of real historical characters whose faithfulness in the past is referred to as proof that even now all who love God will secure his help and final victory provided they continue in the grace which God has so abundantly provided. In other words, what is he saying there when he's saying those he foreknew and he predestined? Here's what he's saying. He's saying if you want proof that God works for all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Look at the Old Testament. Did he not do that for David? Wasn't David a man after God's own heart? Didn't he work all those things? Did David sin? Yeah. But was he still wholly devoted to the Lord? God wasn't demanding perfection. But I tell you what, God responded to the affection that David gave him. How about Abraham? Major screw up. We'd never screw up like him, would we? Of course not. Not us. We're way more perfect than Abraham. But didn't Abraham have a love relationship with God? Yeah. And here's what Paul is saying. If you want to know proof that God works all things for the good for those who love him, who are in that love, committed fellowship, I'm obeying your word relationship, then all you need to do is look to the past. Look at Enoch. God is going to judge this world because it is an ungodly world that does ungodly things all the time. Oh, that's such hate speech. How dare he? It sounds like that that Enoch was probably speaking one of the most loving things he could have spoke to those people because all they cared about was indulging themselves. And he was actually a light in the midst of an incredibly dark generation. So much so that when he was done preaching, he didn't face death. God just took him. Does everybody see that that is a maximum glorification for a faithful person who loved God? The Old Testament's full of them. So, I don't know if you're impacted or if you care or if you fell asleep. But this is God's word, guys. We have to handle it rightly. If we look at something, we say, man, that's not right. We've got to struggle with it. We've got to work through it. And I think we need to work through it together and come to common consensus about it together. Now, if you've got questions, what about that passage? What about that passage? I'm going to be doing Sunday school after this. I'm going to be doing it in here. So we can have those conversations if you want to. I'll get you out before the game, I promise. So let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for being a merciful God who has given us a track record of saints before us who have shown themselves to be faithful, 
who are paving the way for us to be an encouragement so that we would endure, so that we would continue, that we would not give up, but instead we would be part of that great and glorious adoption as sons. That by living obediently now and suffering if need be, we would make the most of the glorification that Jesus died to provide. And that you constantly encourage us to go for that hope, to look for that hope. Father, I'm such an incredibly unworthy person. Ridiculously unworthy. And your grace in this matter is just unbelievable and overwhelming and fantastic. And and oftentimes, my heart tries to convince me that it's too good to be true. But you're just such an incredible giver, and you are the lover of our souls. And I pray, God, that we would be convinced and convicted today to respond to you in love, to say whatever you have said matters more than anything we could ever come up with, than any advice we could ever give, than any other source we could ever trust. We thank you, God, for doing that in Jesus' name. Amen.